going to read two passages from the Bible now. First is from the Gospel of Luke, and then later from the letter of James. This is from Luke chapter 12 and verse 35. Jesus says this, be dressed for service, keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. He will make them recline at the table and he will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Amen. And then reading from the letter of James, we're reading from James 5, picking up the the letter where we left off, it says this. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient. Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that the words that I speak, and the thoughts that we think might be acceptable to you. Amen. simple instruction in that part of the book of James is be patient. Are you? If you were to rate Britain's most popular drinks, I suspect up there near the top of the list would be instant coffee. Instant coffee, mind. Now, you might be like my mother, who genuinely prefers instant coffee to any other type of coffee, but I suspect most people don't. A good Americano, a filter coffee, a percolated coffee, one of these fancy things that the baristas does, something that you've ground and you've smelt the coffee. You know when you get up, you can smell the coffee? Something like that is probably preferable to most of us. So why don't we drink those other drinks? Why do we drink the instant coffee? The answer is quite easy. When you're waking up and it's sleepy, you can put it in and throw the kettle on and it's done, isn't it? 
We don't have the patience to wait till we get the filter down and you've probably got a cafetiere in the back of the cupboard and you, you do all those fancy stuff or you, you go out to a, a place for it. We don't have the time to grind beans and clean the filter and wait on the percolator. What I want is my coffee now so I get the, well, hopefully not Nescafe, but you get the fair trade coffee down off the shelf and there it is. I, I um, last summer decided as my, my midlife crisis for my 50th birthday to buy um, the apparatus to have a really good bean ground coffee in the house. And I love it. I wouldn't go back to instant. But the only reason I love it is because it was an expensive machine where I just press a button and it's done. So it is instant coffee. It's just good instant coffee. Be patient, says James. And yet we live in the world of the microwave dinner and the instant that and the immediate this and the click and the collect and all these other things. Be patient, says James. And yet we have stress levels up to here, tempers freeing, we won't sit still, we refuse to tolerate somebody who seems to slow us down, and all these things say quite clearly, we're not patient, are we? How long is this sermon going on for? It's worse than that because as believers in the Lord, our spiritual lives also speak to our impatience. We pray and we seem to get no results and so we stop praying because we tried that and it didn't work. Or, or we look for spiritual growth in our lives as we come to God's Word but we don't see instant changes and we, we see things the way they were and we think it doesn't work. Or we look to a world that's changing and and. and, and, and more just and we, we yearn for that but it isn't here and so we think nothing will change and God doesn't care. Be patient, says James. Okay, James, I'll try being patient for a wee while. How long do you want me to be patient for? Oh, says James, until the Lord's coming. But James, we've been waiting 2,000 years. How long do you want us to be patient for? And yet, one of the things we are to learn as believers is that God's timing is not our timing. A day is like a thousand years, says the Lord. Now, Here's the strange thing if you've been paying attention. Until the Lord's coming. Now, James has just suddenly slipped into this practical teaching that he's doing something that's a huge big thought. The coming again of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, his brother, coming back. That promise that Jesus made that he would return the same way that he had gone. We've been saying right through that, that James is is, is a practical book. It's about how we live. 
And it's frustrated theologians as they've read James. We said Martin Luther, one of the great theologians of the church, called James the epistle of straw because James didn't seem to do the big doctrinal themes, the big Christian teaching. He doesn't talk about the incarnation. He doesn't talk about the word becoming flesh. He doesn't talk about the crucifixion. He doesn't talk about the meaning of the resurrection. He doesn't have any of these things. There is no teaching on the baptism or the church or the sacraments or, or anything. All the things you find in Paul, they're not here. James just takes them for granted. We said before, of course, he believes in the resurrection. That's how he became a believer in his brother being the Messiah, that he met him alive. But James is, is more interested in, well, if all that is true, how do we teach? How do we trust? How do we live? How do we speak? How do we pray? How do we live out this faith in our works day by day by day. And yet here is James just slipped in in this passage, this whole big bit of theology that begins to blow our minds about the Lord coming back. In fact, if we're honest, it's one of those bits of theology that we might tolerate the minister preaching on Advent Sunday, but the rest of the time, get it out of here. That's what the, the strange Christians do, isn't it? As they thumb through the book of Revelation, looking for prophecies about when the Lord returned, we don't want to do any of that. And yet here in this practical book of James, the only significant theology that James seems to speak to directly is the Lord's coming. It was actually there in the previous chapter, as he, or the previous verses, as he spoke about the Lord coming back in judgment, the Lord coming back and the, the poor and the rich and all of that that was happening in judgment. So why does James have this here? A number of reasons. First of all, uh, as you read the book of James, and we've said this already, although he doesn't quote Jesus directly, you keep hearing echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. You keep hearing echoes of the teaching of Jesus. And if you go back and read the Gospels, you'll find that this notion of the day of the Lord, this notion of the day of judgment, this notion of the day that Jesus would return is there right through all the Gospels. Time and time again, in parable after parable, we hear the sheep and the goats, the, the parable of the, of the watchman, all these things. Jesus taught about this. We can't escape it. And the second reason I think that James speaks about this is that actually it is very practical. And I hope you'll understand why when I finish this morning. Of all the Christian doctrines, it's one that we have abandoned sometimes to folk who are really interested in trying to work out the time and the place and the order and what will happen and reading deep into the book of Revelation. And yet, every time you read of it in Paul or in the Gospels or in the prophets, it's really practical. It almost always comes with a, therefore, live differently for the Lord will return. Therefore, stay awake. Therefore, be ready. Therefore, live in a different light because of what the Lord has promised he will do. Every time the New Testament talks about it, it's not saying try to work out what will happen and when. It's saying right now you need to think about this and it should change and transform the way you're living. So it's not much wonder that James mentions it here. The Old Testament prophets time and time again, as they're addressing practical issues of social justice and morality among God's people, keep saying, a day will come. 
A day will come, not just when the Messiah comes, but a day that comes beyond that, when God will come and heal his creation. Where God will come and put this broken world to right. Isaiah, in that vision that we often see, says that the day will come when the wolf will lie with the lamb, the leopard and the goat will be friends, the cow will feed the bear, the lion will eat straw, and a child will play safely with a snake. Now what he's picturing is a day when all the violence will be sucked out of creation, when all the competition and the animosity and the conflict that we know in our daily lives will go. God's master plan for this world, this world that he made and he loved, is that he will put it all right in the end of time. He will heal his creation and he will end the tears and even death itself. On that day, the prophets have told us, there will be justice for the poor. On that day, God will be among his people and they will walk with him just as Adam and Eve walked in the garden. They will know him. They won't feel God is far off, but they'll know him in their lives day by day. And here is James saying, my brother is going to do that when he returns. The Lord Jesus Christ. So let that transform how you live. How is this practical? Well, James uses an illustration, which is, I suppose, a bit strange for us. Oh, there it is. He uses an illustration, which I suppose is a bit strange for us because we're not really farmers. Well, maybe some of you are been farmers or lived in a farm, but it would have been very common for folk in James's day. He says, look at the farmer. The farmer waits. He waits on the crop coming. He waits and he watches the seasons passing, the weeks and the months going on until the harvest day. In the Middle East, there was always two rainy seasons, one in the spring and one in the autumn that would have to come before you got to the harvest day. And the farmer would wait with anticipation that the rains would come at the right time, that the harvest would be there at the end of the day. The farmer knew that it was pointless to stress. He had to trust that God would bring the rain and the rain would cause the harvest. You could worry. You could do a rain dance. You could tap dance. You could jump up and down. But none of those things would make any difference. Some of the pagan nations thought they could do something with their, their rain gods and it would magic something up. But Israel farmers knew that that was in the hands of God. All they could do was wait, and the Lord would bring the rain, and the harvest was come. It wasn't by stress, or by worry, or by getting upset that you could bring any of those things closer. Of course, that didn't mean the farmer just sat back and said, well, God will do it. No, the farmer worked. He planted he plowed, he weeded, he tended. Farmers, we know proverbially, work the longest hours right through the whole year. The farmer did all of those practical things day by day because he knew what was happening. 
So you have this hope of what God is going to do that both takes away that sense of worry because there's nothing you can do about it, but also gives you a motivation for everything that you are doing patiently day by day by day until the harvest comes. Now, do you see how the illustration works? It's the same for us. All the things that we put in to all of those things. A reason not to stress and worry because it's not in our hands, but also a reason to keep going day by day. A reason not to be impatient, but to be patient because it's all in God's hands. Because impatience does two things that don't work. Finally, first of all, impatience can just leave us angry and frustrated, demanding that it happens now, that I have it now or forget it. And so impatience both leads us to stress, le uh, stress levels that rise as we try to take the world on our shoulders and make it all happen now, or the same impatience leaves us to simply saying, I'm off. I tried it. There's no point in giving up. And that is what we do in so many parts of our life, isn't it? We either give it all up as pointless because we are impatient or we stress because we think it's all upon us. What James is saying here is this, if you know that the Lord is coming, if you know that the future of the world is secure, if you know that one day there will be justice in the world in the face of all the injustice you see, if you know that one day there will be healing, if you know that one day we will have new bodies and all the ailments and the suffering will be over, if you know that one day the whole world will know the Lord Jesus Christ and will bow down and acknowledge Him, and one day we will know our God face to face, if you know all of those things, then you don't get angry and frustrated with the way things are but you don't give it all up. It's a pointless waste of time as you work for justice and healing and people to know God and the world to be a better place right now. That's why this is practical. If we know that one day, not just the world healed, but we will be perfected, then we have the strength to allow God's spirit to work in us day by day by day now. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of the Lord, says Paul. So, here in verse 8, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And that nearness isn't a temporal thing, as if he might come tomorrow it's much more a certain thing because the Lord Jesus has promised. And because actually, as we look at the injustice in the world and the pain of the world and the pain of our bodies, there is something deep within us that says this cannot be the last word. That's why we have a sense of justice. We have a sense that this cannot be the end of the story. That yearning that's within us is met in the promise of God who has put it in our heart. Now, the second thing that James says as an instruction is don't grumble. Funny, I, I read that yesterday and I thought, don't grumble. How come James is anti-Scottish? Because we like a good grumble, don't we? 
if it's not the weather, it's the football team. There's always something. And in fact, our, particularly our social media has, ha, has brought this to the fore. There's always something to complain about. The government, the weather, the church, the school, the local authority, the council. Somebody's doing something that we're angry about. It's one of the, the strange things of our, our communications today. Are we ever anything except angry? And if the things that we were angry about were suddenly sorted by somebody, we'd just find someone else to be angry about, wouldn't we? Who'd be in politics of any party in any government today? Because people are just constantly angry, constantly furious, and sometimes with reason. But that anger comes because we are impatient. Because we yearn for that perfection where everything is right. But we want it now, and we demand it in other people right now. You know, it's interesting, um, that whole Matt Hancock thing, and I don't want to go into it, but the biggest charge was a government minister mustn't be a hypocrite. He mustn't say one thing and do another. I'll tell you, every preacher in the country went, oh. Because we all live in that place where we are not what we should be, but we want to be and aspire to be something else. The problem is we look at one another and we say, eh, you're not, you shouldn't. And that grumbling begins. Now, there's some, some of it is right. It's right that we have in, in our hearts a sense of justice, and, and therefore we get angry when things aren't just. We get angry when things are wrong. We get angry when people are abused. But sometimes, again, the anger comes out of the lack of hope, and so we either just become stressed over it, or again, we throw up our hands and say, what's the point? What's the point? The world's always going to be like this. Grumbling, when you hear that word in the New Testament, connects with a story. And it's a story that echoes right through the scripture. And the story is the Exodus story. Because that's where you find the word grumbling most often. And the Exodus story, in a nutshell, you'll know it, but the people of Israel are freed from Egypt. They're saved. They're delivered. They go through the waters. God set them free. So that's what's happened, God's salvation. But they're also given a promise, aren't they? I will take you to a new land where you won't be slaves anymore, but you will have milk and honey, and peace and security. Promised land. But in the meantime, they have to go through the wilderness. And in the wilderness, there are tough times. There are frustrating times. There's times of testing. They have to live day by day, patiently in hope that God will bring them to where they're supposed to be in his time. See the whole farming analogy there? But what happens? What happens is that they lose that sense of the future hope. And so that as they lose that sense of the future hope, they begin to look at that day and say, Lord, where's the bread? We want it now. Where's the water? We want it now. Why aren't you getting us where we're supposed to be? We want it now. And there is no patience in what they do. And they start grumbling against Moses, against God, against the situation. They start saying nutty things like we were better off as slaves. Take us back. There is no peace. And there is no steadfastness. And there is no continuing on through the tough times and through the suffering. 
And you see, that picture is a picture of the Christian life. We have been set free. God has given us so much. He has given us our lives. He has set us free by the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And He's given us this promise that one day, one day, we will be part of this new creation where the tears are over, where the justice rules on the earth, where the creation is healed. And in the meantime, because of that hope that we have and because of that liberation that we've experienced, we should be able to live day by day in the trials with steadfastness, standing and having patience. But the reality is we lose the hope and therefore the grumbling starts because it all seems pointless or it all seems on me. And of course, grumbling is not productive. I'm... I'm constantly struck just now, and sorry about going on about social media, but it it, it sums up so much in our lives that that, that people have this sense of injustice, and so they they, they post this rant or whatever it is about the politicians done this or the government's done that, or whether it's the Scottish government or the UK, whatever it is. And then they feel virtuous because they've they've got 500 likes on their post. What have they done? Nothing. Has that made the world a better place? No. In fact, very often they haven't even bothered writing to their MP or their MSP or or offering to help. All they've done is shouted and screamed. And then they felt virtuous. You didn't like it. You didn't share it. So you can't be... What is this about? What would it be if rather than doing that or as well as doing that in our communities, we actually started to say, "Well, well, what do we do? How do we act? How do we live? How do we share? How do we work for justice? How do we work to reduce climate change? But the grumbling begins because we see the imperfection, but we have no hope that anything can make a difference. And so the anger, the frustration, or the just give up, it's all hopeless, the cynicism. The one mark of our, our society just now is everybody is so cynical. Whatever your politics are, What would it be to be a hopeful people? Because we know what God has promised and we know, therefore, working and struggling to be transformed is worth it because of what God has done. For Christians, we live always hopefully because the hope has been promised, guaranteed by what the Lord has done and the promise he has made to come back. The judge is standing at the door. So therefore, look at your own actions, is what James is saying. The grumbling that's undermining you, the way you're treating folk, the standards you're demanding of them that you're not demanding of yourself. And then he uses two illustrations very, very shortly. Well, this Mr. Grumble. He does look Scottish, doesn't he? Anyway, he uses two illustrations very quickly. One is the prophets. Now, the prophets in the Old Testament always saw the future. They didn't always see everything that was going to happen, but they had this great sense that as they were telling Israel about all the injustice and the the, the immorality and the, the problems of the present, they also presented them with a hope that one day the Lord would come. The day of the Lord would come. One day he'd bring his people back to Jerusalem. One day he'd send a Messiah. One day he'd restore the kingdom of David. And much more than that, as we've seen in the great promises of Isaiah and elsewhere, one day the creator would restore the whole of creation. Now, the thing about the prophets is this. They never saw the hope 
that they spoke of. Messiah didn't come in their day. The exiles didn't return in their day. In fact, the people didn't even respond to what they were saying. Many of the prophets lived at a time where the more they spoke God's word, the worse the people got. Jeremiah started off with this ministry of telling people they should return to the Lord, and it ended with them being chucked down a well. They didn't get instant results or a button pressed and the world fixed. And yet they stayed faithful to God because they kept praying and they kept preaching and they kept trusting in what God would do. And that wasn't pie in the sky that left them saying, well, that's fine, I can sit back and do nothing. No, that was something that kept them faithful and steadfast through all the suffering that came day by day by day. The promise of the future hope that left them living to change the world each day. Or Job. Now, the story of Job is an interesting story. It's a parable in some ways where there is a good man, a godly man called Job. Everything's going well in his life and the devil in this parable says to the Lord, well, he only loves you because you give him all the good stuff. No, he's a successful businessman, lovely family, health, wealth, everything he's got. That's why he loves you. Take all our way, he'll not love you, he'll curse you and he'll hate you. And Job, uh, sorry, God says to the devil, well, on you go. So the devil takes away from Job his health and his family and his wealth until he's got nothing. Except a bunch of friends who say, well, you must have done something wrong. They're really encouraging guys. And Job struggles with what all this is about, like we would struggle. In fact, he, he, he does complain to God. But at no point, at no point does Job end his relationship with God. He keeps wrestling with God. He keeps talking with God till finally, well, he doesn't really get answers so much as he gets a God who says, you can trust me. It'll be all right. And Job submits himself in a hope that he doesn't fully understand that everything will be well, and in the end of the book, everything is restored to him. You see, hope is what keeps us going. I'm not talking about the hope that the Scotland team will eventually win the World Cup. That's not the sort of hope I'm talking about. But what the Bible says of the sure and the certain hope, the hope that is secure because God does it, just like he sends the rains and he brings the harvest. And yet the hope that leaves us praying day by day, working day by day. So I hope in saying all of this that that great theme of the day of the Lord, that great thing of the Lord's returning suddenly becomes not a sort of weird doctrine for folk that want to study the, the intricacies of the book of Revelation and work out what it's all about, but actually for us who are trying to work out how we live day by day. The folk that live the, read the book of Revelation have long had a a debate about whether the imagery there is pre-millennial or post-millennial, which is a huge big discussion among Christians that seem to have nothing better to do with their time about whether the Lord will come and then there'll be a reign of peace or whether there'll be a reign of peace before the Lord returns. It's all very complicated and it doesn't, in my view, matter. And I just remember hearing the story of, of the Christian and somebody came to him and said, do you believe the Lord will return? And he said, yeah, I believe the Lord will return. And he said, well, which one are you? Are you a premillennialist or a postmillennialist? And the guy said, I'm a panmillennialist. 
What do you mean you're a pan-millennial? What does that mean? He says, well, he says, I, I, I know the Lord will come back. I didn't ken when and I didn't ken where, but I ken it'll all pan out in the end. That's hope. It's not understanding all the weird things. It's simply knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ can be promised and trusted. His promises can be trusted. And the God who says, in my son, I am remaking and recasting this world and one day I will judge it in perfect righteousness, compassion, and mercy. And One day the tears will stop. And one day all that I have done in your life will be perfected so that you are like shining stars before me. And you will walk with God and he will walk with you. That is the hope for which we work and strive and look to. For the Lord will do these things. The Lord is full compassion and mercy. Amen. Let's pray.